Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I am joined today by super producer Alex. Hello, Tracy Bell. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm psyched you're here. So, uh, Alex, you, you like guns? Uh, we, yeah, it's a controlled explosion. You can point in certain directions. Who's, what's not to like? Oh, well, have you ever had a gun pointed at you, like a, like a real gun? In fact, I have. You have? Yeah. Uh, I did not think you would say that. What <laughs> What happened? Well, it was just sitting on the bed pointing in my direction, so I just stepped out of the way. So there wasn't anyone attached to the gun? No, there was nobody. I've never had anybody threaten me with a firearm. I've had guns pointed at me, but incidentally, oh. you know, not not with any malice intent. Oh, well, uh, Marcy Maslov, our guest today, she has, she has someone follow her home to knock her off. Her name again was? Marcy Maslov. Is she the you- one that, did, if you ring a bell, does she start salivating? No, that's different. Pavlov's huh, okay. dogs. No, Marcy Maslov. She was a corporate <laughs> finance director for a big U.S. international company. She would not tell me who they were or but that we would know them. She wouldn't tell me who they were or where this incident took place. Well, now I'm just salivating to know more. God, what am I going to do with you? I, just exactly what you're doing. And I'll just keep trying to derail the whole show. That's what exactly. I do. <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We got right, to we talk to Marcy because this story is amazing. And she's doing some really cool stuff now. Like it changed her life. And mm-hmm. she's doing some really cool stuff in light of this with ethics training. With so, ethics training. Okay. Yeah. Because ethics training is super important. And So you're telling tell- me that this, we've got somebody named Marcy Pavlov who's involved with training. No, Matt. <laughs> this is going exactly the way I thought it was going to go. There's nothing. There's no surprise here. <laughs> okay, okay. What everybody else can't see is that I'm watching this ridiculous look on, on Tracy's face as she can't stop herself from laughing at my bad, bad dad jokes. There, okay, so we're going to just, let's just talk to Marcy. You, you don't want to talk to me anymore? No. No, <laughs> I love you, Tracy. I'll talk to you later after we listen to some Let's, Marcy. Marcy. All right, we're out. It's Tracy, and I'm back again with, I think, what is going to be one of our more fascinating interviews here on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I got Marcy with us. Marcy, tell me your last name. Make sure I get it right. It's Maslov. Maslov. Okay, Marcy Maslov. And you have this story, this this fraud, potential fraud story that I have never heard of anything like this. So why don't we jump in? Because you ended up with a gun to your head. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> right, right. Okay. But but you're not you're not a gangster. You're a CPA, a corporate CPA. So we know how the story almost ends with the gun to your head. What happened? Marcy, take us through it. Okay. So it was early in my career. I was a new manager, young. And you're night. Fortune 500, right? Or is it Fortune 500? 
Yep. Fortune okay. 500 global company. You would all know the company if I named it. I'm not naming it. Okay. Not telling you where I was either. <laughs> Just so you know. Okay. I don't want to create any problems. But um, I was sent there to be the American taking care of the money. Uh-huh. And Okay, wait, wait, you said to be the American. So you're somewhere overseas. Is that I'm accurate? That's all I will say. Yep. Okay. Over- okay. Yep. Um, but it was an American company and they wanted U.S. ethics to handle the money and the accounting process. So I was the head of the finance um, requirements and, and jobs there. And someone came to me one night and said, <laughs> one of your leadership team has killed a couple of people. Oh, one, the same individual is raping the girls on the plant when they ask for company sponsored and legally required benefits. And the same individual has been stealing money, started a business and is now selling the service back to the company. Oh, now was this person American? This person was not American. Oh, okay. Okay. So I still have images, Tracy, of like how all this went down. This is a while ago now, but I still have very vivid pictures in my mind. And this individual was scared to death, shaking head to toe, found the courage somehow to come to, to actually come to me and tell me what was going on. And blow I had the whistle. Okay. And built some trust and, you know, was trying to make life better for people. And so this individual decided to take a chance. And so they came and they told me what was going on. And then they looked at me and said, you're the finance director. This is your job. What are you going to do to fix it? And in that moment, that was really like a life-changing moment for me. A lot of my, the way I view my life is pre and post that moment in time. Really? Yes. Because that was when I realized I was working with somebody who had killed someone um, uh, that at least some of the other executives knew about it based on what this individual had told me and that I now knew enough that could get me into trouble. Never in a million years did I imagine, because I was still so young. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't imagine that I would actually have a gun pointed at my head and we don't prepare accountants for how to deal with stuff like this. So I was thinking, you know, do your job, do it well, you get rewarded, you get promoted, you keep moving. That was my mindset at that time. And so I didn't have an answer for that individual. All I could say is I need proof and I need, you know, to understand how much money is missing and, and what else is, has happened. And individual suggested I look at my own accounting records because it was all there. Oh. So I started a process of looking through the accounting records to try to see what I could find. Um, that was, I became sort of like a forensic accountant before there was really forensic accounting to the title that we have today. Um, and I also, because I was one of the only female executives there, I started talking to the girls. So mm-hmm. I started to find out the real story of what was happening and what they were being forced to do. And, and I learned that I had about 25% of my workforce had been raped and was single mothers. And these were all 18 year old girls, 18 to 20 year old girls, all single mothers at that age. And um, so, you know, that was finally what got me to, to take an action because I, you know, when you're in the corporate world, you can't just 
go with a suspicion and say, hey, I think something's happening. You have to have some proof. You have to have some validity and some details behind your claims. Otherwise, they're not going to take you seriously. And so um, I needed some evidence to go back to my supervisors and having some of those stories and having some of the money that I did find and, and evidence in other things that were going on. I took that back to the corporate, um, my bosses in corporate. And I learned somewhere in that process that they knew what was going on, but they couldn't get anybody to tell them what was happening. So that's why they sent me in and they didn't tell me any of that up front. So I didn't know <laughs> what was happening until they came to me and told me this. So I set up a process, um, worked with corporate. They decided that they were going to take some actions. Um, I helped them out with the plans because I knew the inside of how things were working. And we, we cleaned up a lot of the mess, but we couldn't prove all of the claims, unfortunately. So long story short, comp- corporate came in, clean house, the folks that did it figured out that I was the one that blew the whistle. Oh. So to speak. And so somebody one day followed me out of the plant and followed me home. And basically from the end of my driveway pointed a gun at my head. And I am just blessed that they, they didn't get a shot off because I made a lot of noise and a lot of people started running out of the house, their houses you know, in this whole process, Tracy, I had to decide a lot of things. When I went to corporate, they told me that they would teach me how to protect myself uh-huh. because they knew it was going to be dangerous. Um, so they they gave me a Navy SEAL boot camp. <laughs> really? You okay? Let's okay. Let's stop there and talk about this Navy SEAL boot camp because yeah. I have studied Navy SEAL boot camps quite a bit because. Um, this was, was an abbreviated version. It was an over a weekend. It was not a formal thing. It was the security team that actually did security for the CEO of the company. And they just basically pulled it together in a weekend and said, okay, here's the things we need to teach you so you can protect yourself. <laughs> what now? What did you learn? I learned defensive driving. I learned how to um, upgrade the security in my house. I learned how to be observant of my surroundings Um, I did not have any weapons training or anything like that, but I did actually learn how to protect myself. So should somebody try to attack me? So let's talk about the defensive driving for a minute, because I've talked to some military, uh, friends about, uh, soldiers that, that come back because they've learned this defensive driving and they actually have problems learning, relearning how to drive (laughs) like in traffic and stuff, because you're not supposed to get in traffic. Yeah. With yeah. like, so you're supposed to go on the sidewalks and all sorts of, so, so yeah. tell, tell like, so, clue us in just a little bit on that. <laughs> so a lot of the places that I was driving in this particular location were, they were two lane roads that narrowed to one lane mm-hmm. at some points. And so they, they taught me how to handle like avoiding getting boxed in at that place where it narrowed to one lane. They also taught me, you know, how to observe the cars around me and notice, you know, things that looked odd or potentially Mm -hmm. dangerous for me. Mm -hmm. Um, There was not in in this location, there was not a lot of traffic. Like, you know, I'm originally from the city of Chicago, so there wasn't the traffic like 
you know, six lanes of highway kind of I've stuff. I've been in that Chicago traffic. I have <laughs> to try to get to the airport. makes that train look pretty attractive. It <laughs> is very attractive. <laughs> Unless you know the side streets to take and that mm-hmm. you know, we can talk offline about that one day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. So, so, you know, they taught me things like that, that were particular to that location. Um, and then they also taught me like some basic, um, maneuvers in case I had to like turn around and go back or take a side diversionary path or something like that. So, you know, they taught me a lot of that. And again, this was an abbreviated, you know, boot camp because I had about three days um, to basically learn what I needed to learn before going back. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was that was it. And to this day, I still like I won't put my personal belongings on the floor. Um, I will have my back to the wall. So like I'm always facing the door or the entryway to, to, to rooms and things mm-hmm. like that. I will observe a room before I choose a seat, you know, looking for the best defensive location to be sitting so that I'm, I don't open myself up to attack. Even to this day, I still do that now. Wow. Well, you know, I, <laughs> since we're just chatting here, I went out and I've interviewed him on the podcast, Jack Barsky. And he is a former CIA or yeah, CIA Russian spy. Uh-huh. And we went out to uh, dinner in Atlanta and he's talking about, because you know, all this stuff about Ukraine and everything. He's talking about Putin and about what he thinks, what he really thinks. And, and this guy's like, you know, connected to the KGB, at least formally. And, uh, and I'm thinking, am I okay here? Like, <laughs> and I'm looking around I'm, and I'm like, okay, my back is to the wall. What else do I yep. need to look for? Yep. Well, so what else do you need to look for? You need to look for the, the exit ways, mm-hmm. any place that you would be able to get out. And some of them you don't even think about, like some of them are like exits to the back rooms instead of the, the front to the outside street. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to look at where people are seated and what obstacles you have between you and the door. You need to look at, um, you know, what other impediments to your security might exist, mm-hmm. right? So, and I guess I just do it now automatically because I've done it for so long, but they literally drilled me in, in observing and, and also observing anything that could be potentially a weapon if somebody did try to attack me. Like I had to think like, you know, like how they teach women self-defense these days. Mm-hmm. I had to think that way as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so you go through this weekend and how are you feeling? You're like, wait a minute, why did they teach me this? Is that like in your yeah. mind at all? Or well, like, what's going on? Was, they, they gave me a choice. Honestly, Tracy, they gave me a choice because they said, look, we don't know if we can protect you in the place, but we want you to have the choice of whether or not you want to proceed on this. And I said, if I leave now, then that gives away the game. Then they know something is wrong. So I don't feel like I have a choice. I have to be there. So yes, I want the protection. I want the lessons. They had somebody come to my house in this location and give me some guidance on things I needed to do to improve my security um, in the, in my house mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But um, they, they didn't really give me any kind of an expectation of what I might face. So this was a surprise when somebody followed me home, but they had taught me to be aware of my surroundings. So I saw the car following me almost from the plant gate. So it wasn't like I literally had time to think, okay, so somebody's following me. Let's do a little diversionary thing. Let's see if they really are following me. And uh-huh. so I knew 
knew the city a little bit pretty well at this, by this point. So I did a little side jogs and stuff. And yeah, sure enough, the car was following me. And um, so then I had to decide, okay, so where do I go? Yeah. Because- well, now, now I would probably like, without having had this training, yeah, I would probably go, I would drive to the police station. Um, it was a place where I could not go to the police station because police were not trusted. Oh, dang. Okay. So, okay. So I'm yeah. whittling this down now. Were you, yeah. in, you were, so you were South of the U S is what I'm thinking. I can't tell you. Oh, okay. I'm going to take that as a yes. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> I so where. I can't tell you where, okay, but, so, so, but the reality, so, but here, yeah, I am going to say this to you though, Tracy, because unfortunately now, even in today's environment, some of the same stuff could happen here. Okay. Unfortunately, okay. Um, I I no longer feel completely safe even here. Got, okay. Oh wow! Um, only because there you don't realize like I managed millions and millions of dollars as mm-hmm. the controller and finance director, and I think people um, don't understand and don't appreciate the role of an accountant as much as they should. Mm-hmm. My bias, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but. I have been asked to do a lot of things that would violate law if I did them and would cause me to, you know, potentially lose my license if I chose to do Got that. It. Okay. So, okay. So let's, so, okay. So let's go back to this because yeah. <laughs> you have these sidetracks. I can't just let go. Okay. So <laughs> you, so you drive around and you decide to drive home because there's no one going to help you because that was the safest place for me to be protected. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I went to the plan, I'd be dead. Okay. okay. Because that was their territory, not mine. Okay. So I needed my territory. My supervisor there was lived down the block from me. So if I needed help, I could get to the supervisor's house. I knew the neighbors. So, mm-hmm. you know, and they knew me. So that was the safest place in my view that I could get to and get myself protected. Mm-hmm. So that was why I chose to go home. I had a gated, you know, it was a gated um, community. So, you know, mm-hmm. once I got through the gates of my home, then, then I would be safe and stuff. So like, so all of this happened, actually, I didn't never got the gate open because it all happened right before the gate. So, yeah. So, wow. Okay. So, so crazy. What, what, did they get out of the car or were so, they? No, they pointed the gun out. So it was a black Monte Carlo, black, t- dark tinted window. I'll never, I, I have these pictures in my head. Um, tinted windows, no license plate, no lights on the car. Oh. Literally, they just opened the rear window, stuck a gun out of the, the back window and pointed it basically almost point blank range. I mean, they were angled. I was in, in the driveway and they were angled right behind me. Like and you were in your, you're in your car. Yeah. In my okay. car. So then you made a bunch of noise. What did you like? What kind of lights, my flashing lights, my horn in my car. I actually did a little screaming because at that point I was very, very scared. Uh-huh. And people started running out of the houses. My neighbors across the street and the neighbors to either side of me ran out. And so the car just disappeared into the night. So wow. that is how I managed to get out of that. Um, but, you know, had they taken a shot at me, I would be dead. And I think to a certain degree, this is just a scare tactic. I'm not fully sure they wanted because there was time there had, they had time if they had really wanted to shoot at me, they had the time before people started coming out of their houses. So, but I remember it all, like it happened so fast and I had to make split second decisions. I had 
you know, I had a maid at this house and her son came out and tried to gallantly open my car door. And I had to lock my door to prevent the door from being open because that would have given me the whole access to like the whole seated body. And oh I yeah, just, I wasn't going there. So, yeah. So it was, it was pretty scary. It's, it's, it's in a moment of time that I still remember very vividly the picture and I still have snapshots in my head and mm-hmm. I'm grateful every day for, um, not, you know, being killed that day. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So what happens right after that? Um, yeah. <laughs> what happens right after that is that I shake in my car for about 10 minutes. <laughs> I literally was like incapable of moving. And I finally moved my car into the, <clears throat> into my garage, my driveway and, and went about my evening, mm-hmm. but you're right. I mean, I had to make some really snap decisions and going into the plant the next day was one of the scariest things that I ever actually did because. Yeah. yeah. Did you I tell anyone? Work. I mean, would you even go? I don't know if I yeah, would even go I to did. work. I did tell the two people that I trusted there. I did tell them what had happened, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have, pl- I didn't have proof. I didn't have a, a cell phone picture or anything like that. I just had all of this that had happened in, you know, the space of a minute. So I told people what had happened. Um, I told my supervisors what had happened. Um, but once that happened, it's sort of like the, the gig was up for them as well. Cause they knew that I knew. And so they knew that I had enough authority to do more if I chose to do it. So shortly after that, I ended up leaving um, that, that organization, because <clears throat> they said that they couldn't protect me. I didn't feel safe. Uh-huh. So uh, I left, I separated from the company. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't know how much of an impact Tracy I had on that organization until years later. Cause I thought I failed. Like I leaving that organization was not something I really wanted to do. Uh-huh. Um, so I thought I'd failed because I didn't keep my job there. Right. Uh-huh. But I couldn't, I didn't feel safe. And, and the reality was the company said, okay, you know, we're, we can't protect you. So we need you to leave. And years later, I talked to a couple of people that I had worked with there. And I said, yeah, I'm so sorry. I left you guys. And I'm, I'm so sorry. I failed you. And they're like, what are you talking about? They said, the girls light a candle for you every Christmas because you prevented them from getting raped. The plant has gone from the lowest in the whole corporate system in terms of production and productivity to the number one in the, in the world for production efficiency and productivity. And so I didn't know, you know, any of those things, some of the people that I did trust in that plant got promoted and ended up, you know, going global with their um, specialties and things Mm -hmm. like that. So you never know what your impact is going to be. And I'm just lucky that, in, in this case, I took a risk. I risked my life not knowing and not planning to do that, but I risked my life to protect girls and to prevent fraud and to prevent um, unethical behavior. But that was also the beginning for me of understanding that we don't teach people how to solve ethical dilemmas. I mean, if you were in that situation, I ask you, I ask all your listeners, if you're in that kind of a situation, what is the first thing you think about and what is the first action you take? We don't train people on how to turn this into a problem solving exercise. It becomes a pure emotional fight or flight kind of reaction. And 
And I was not trained either. So I just had to rely on my own ethical standards, my own values, the things that were important to me in the moment to make my initial decisions and then back it up later with more fact. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about, okay, you left and then what happened? Like take us through. So what happened was they, they literally cleaned house and they, they, they got, they, I don't know what the right word is, but two people ended up leaving all of the rape and all of the theft stopped. Okay. They, they literally sent other people in to clean up and to do the, the retraining, so to speak Mm -hmm. of people. So, you know, that all happened um, within the, you know, the year after I left. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of that happened. Then the management that was in that location, a couple of those people left, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then they had to, you know, replace them and retrain those that were there. Uh, I wasn't part of that retraining. And that's, you know, if I had stayed, I would have been part of that retraining. Um, effort and that mentality shift, because this was a, this was a team that almost all of the people on the executive team had participated in some of that stuff mm-hmm. and knew that it was happening. And everybody in the plant knew that it was happening. So they had to completely, you know, redo the mindset of people. And so that took some time, but they did it. And, um, and like I said, that that plant became one of the most efficient and productive plants as a result of making a few of those changes. Now, they, before I left, they did ask me, you know, who would be good to be promoted and, and to help with this process. And I gave them the names of, I, I mean, you know, there's so much that happened in that time frame. But when I first learned of all of this that was happening, I had to assess who could I trust? Right. And who could I not trust? And that's an essence. That's like an ethical character requirement for me. Now, if I'm going to work with somebody, trust has to be there. And there were, I assessed that there were only two people that I could trust. Neither of them were my bosses. Mm -hmm. Oh, Um, but they were, they were local people that I had been working with and I felt had the right ethical standards and the ability to take action and make decisions. They, in, in essence, they were what I consider to be ethical leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so those two people were the people that I went to whenever I had a question about something. And because you know, you're dealing with international ethics. So my ethics are, and standards are going to be different than other yeah. countries standards. So you, you could misinterpret something and that could be costly. And I knew that right from the beginning, as soon as this all started unfolding that I needed to have some local people that I could trust. Mm-hmm. There were very, very few that mm-hmm. I could. Wow. Wow. Okay. So how's that parlay into what you're doing now? <laughs> that is the beginning of what I'm doing now. That was the first ethical dilemma that I ever really faced where I realized I didn't know the answers Mm -hmm. and I didn't know where to get the answers. There was no handbook. There Mm -hmm. was no policy that said, and somebody comes to you and says that, you know, a colleague is raping people and stealing money. This is what you do. There's no handbook in a company. Yeah. So, so it took me a while to percolate all this and to process through this and to learn to accept that I actually survive this, but then also that I did some good, you know, mm-hmm. in, in helping other girls and people. 
But it, it helped me also to see that we don't train people on how to solve ethical dilemmas. So if somebody comes to you, for example, and says, I need a check for $20,000. Right. Um, and you say, well, what for? And the person says, just write the check. Yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. So, but we don't teach people how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Now let's say, so this is an ongoing, write the check. No, I'm not going to do it. Then the person says, if you don't write the check, you'll be responsible for closing down a plant and 2,500 people will lose their job. How does that impact the way you feel about writing this $20,000 check? Well, I don't know because it it seems a little threatening. It is a little threatening, but the reality is you would be named as that person responsible for shutting down that plant. Mm -hmm. And that would be on you. And that would affect your personal and professional reputation. So ethics is this gray area that makes you consider all these different things, Mm -hmm. all these different elements of your decision. And I realize that we don't teach that. So I I proceeded with my career, took another job, worked my way through the chain, all the way up the chain Mm -hmm. in accounting and finance. And finally, the last job that I took, um, they asked, it was another overseas um, assignment. And I was routinely asked to write bribery checks to falsify inventory values to pretend we, we didn't, um, um, ship stuff to a supplier that we shouldn't have shipped. I mean, all kinds of stuff that was illegal, Sarbanes-Oxley violation, mm-hmm. you know, kind of stuff. And, and I was always the one person that said, no, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I paid a huge price for that ethical standard. And I finally left that company. I said, I, I cannot support your request for illegal activity. I mean, the long and short of it, they hired me to clean up all that mess, but they wouldn't take any of my advice on what to do. Mm. And I, you know, I had given them proposals that would have saved them 20 million a quarter or, you know, Mm -hmm. in in terms of reduced scrap and reduced inefficiencies. Mm. They didn't want to take any of my advice. So I finally left that company. And as I'm driving away, I'm like, okay, I got to do something about ethics. And a month after I left that organization, I literally woke up in the middle of the night going, oh, I got to create a game. <laughs> uh-huh. It like just came to me, Tracy. And I mean it, this is literally like I'm, I'm staring at the ceiling going, I've just given up a really good job, a lot of money in salary. What am I going to do next? And this picture of my board game showed up in my head and the word ethics on a movie marquee, like in Times Square showed up in my head. So I got up and I turned on the computer and I, (laughs) I started typing. And Uh the next thing I I had a six page executive summary that outlined the game, outlined how the board should look, outlined who played, had some scenarios based on my own real life stuff. Yeah. And I realized, okay, so I can teach this to business people and put them into ethical dilemmas in a safe environment, creative environment, but give them permission to make a mistake, to take the bribe, to write the bribe check, and then Mm -hmm. see the consequences without actually impacting them. And so that was, that was ultimately what happened is I created that game. Um, I launched it (laughs) <laughs> in 2008, two weeks before Bear Stearns and Sherson Lehman all went out of business and oh, we started boy. a financial crisis. So my first official day of business, I lost $50,000 of contracts that I had negotiated because everything crashed. 
Well, that, that's about when I started my business as well. And so yeah. uh, we're, but th- there was such opportunity in that time. There was a huge amount of opportunity. So I spent that whole year just knocking on doors, building awareness of who I am, teaching people ethics that I could get to accept the programs and, um, and putting ethical dilemmas into perspective for, uh, for people. So it took a while. If you recall, those times were really turbulent. Most people didn't have money for training. So mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of stuff, you know, speaking and, and doing a lot of stuff that was for free or for low cost. Yeah, I did a lot of free stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But a lot. But after I started getting known and people started calling me saying, OK, I have an ethics dilemma. Can you help me? So I started getting known for that. And then I started speaking on a national scale. And, um, and then I created a CPA version of the game that's for continuing professional education. And that sort of like mushroomed everything out because once I started almost every profession now for license renewal has an ethics class required okay. and making the game out of it, but making it attached to the updates and the legal requirements and all the codes of conduct and stuff that made their codes of conduct come to life and made the, the ethics training fun but at the same time, I'm still teaching people how to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm still teaching them critical thinking skills, team mm-hmm. building, what to communicate, you know, how to build relationships and how to process. If somebody asks you to do something illegal or unethical, how to respond to that. So that's what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm creating the safe space so people can actually do the training and actually feel what it feels like to be asked to write a bribery check in the moment and respond in the moment, because you have to answer to your teammates that are playing with you and stuff. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. that's, what, that's what happens today. And I have saved businesses. I have saved people's licenses. Um, I have helped people make decisions on whether or not they want to pursue a particular job or career. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's now the game will be 15 years in November. Wow. I want to play now. How, how can <laughs> I'll come how right can, over? <laughs> how, how can do, do people's bosses have to bring this in or how does it work? So, so I usually talk with, uh, well, so when I speak, it's whoever's in the room, mm-hmm. like will bring me in. Cause they will experience the game. Like, you know, I've spoken at, um, society for corporate compliance and ethics. Mm-hmm. I've spoken at different conferences for different Um, professions and things like that. So that's the easiest of the funnels because that is um, people actually experience the game. And I think once you experience a couple of scenarios, Mm -hmm. it makes it pretty easy for you to see how it works. And in fact, when I do um, sales calls on various people, I'll bring scenarios with me and have the senior executives actually do a scenario and see how they respond with their team. Ideally for me, like the best cases, I have a senior leader, some staff, um, some different cross-functional teams. Like, you know, if it's going to be accounting, mm-hmm. I'll bring in legal and I'll bring in operations. And so, uh, you know, a group of people with different perspectives so that they can see and hear all the different perspectives that are involved in solving an ethical dilemma. And so, you know, people, they either have experienced me, seen me speak, or I, I go to some of the companies that have larger accounting and legal firms uh, or teams, um, or that need to do ethics training because they have gotten some level of fine or punishment requires them to have to do ethics training and 
So they find me, they find me online. My, I like it. So good. speaking of being required, this is a change yeah. of subject slight. Yeah. Uh, I read in the Wall Street Journal <laughs> about, <laughs> about Ernst and Young. Yes. And they have uh, been handed down a hundred million dollar fine. Yes. For lying about training their people in ethics. Yes. Or do you want to elaborate on that? I'm sure you're much more. Yes. Uh, I, I, I am. Well, in my last ethics workshop last week to a group of solopreneur accounting professionals mm-hmm. that run their own companies, I, I went through that. Yeah. And it's um, so every CPA um, has to take an, an ethics class to renew their license. Every state has a different requirement. So Arizona has a four hour requirement and it's two year cycle. Illinois has a uh, four-hour requirement, but it's a three-year cycle. Um, some states only have a two or a three-hour requirement. So every state has a little bit different requirement, but every state requires CPAs to do an ethics class, except one state. I don't remember the state. I'm not going to tell them because I don't remember what it is, but one state does not. <laughs> <laughs> what, so, okay, wait, what's the most unethical state we can think about? Um... <laughs> it's not Texas. Texas requires- I'm going to say Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, they, I believe I believe that they require an ethics class. All right, sorry to all our Louisiana so, people. Anyway, okay. Anyway, so, so, um, so Ernst and Young, the what was happening was the people like if I remember the the article and the information, it was one person did the did the ethics class or did the ethics test. And then gave the answers to the others in the office. That is so <laughs> ridiculous. That is like the and dumbest thing the ever. Attorneys, the attorneys found out about it the day after that it happened, but they did not self-report it. And they, they did not volunteer the information in any way. They waited till the SEC did an investigation. Mm-hmm. And that's how they found it. I don't know fully how they found it, but the SEC did an investigation and, um, realize that their people had had lied. And mm-hmm. so the folks that did the ethics class that, you know, that cheated on the ethics class, they lied. Mm-hmm. Yep. <sighs> Cheating yeah, on so, the ethics so this test. Is why, I mean, this is, this is what I teach. This is like the entire, this is such an avoidable thing, right? And nobody loves the ethics class. A hundred so, million dollars. You better love the ethics class. It, <laughs> Yeah. And if, so if anybody from Ernst and Young is actually like listening to your podcast, I have a game. <laughs> I can make this class fun for you and teach you the updates that you need to get professionally to understand how the American Institute of CPAs is changing the code of ethics and things like that. So I am going to be on the lookout for additional interpretations and pronouncements on, you know, how not to cheat. <laughs> How not to cheat. That, that's just like, it seems so simple. <laughs> just don't cheat. <laughs> well, do you really want to risk? I mean, you know, here in Arizona, that would be um, something that would actually get your license suspended yes. and potentially revoked. Some states might even revoke your license for that. So you have to think, and this is what I teach, right? Mm-hmm. You have to think about the consequences, the choices you have and the consequences you have. Mm-hmm. We all have a choice to take this class legitimately. <laughs> we all have a choice to cheat and we all have a, a choice to do something in between. This class, for the most part, most people take it online. It's four hours. The content a lot of times doesn't change. So it's very boring. 
it, and everybody hates it. They wait till the last minute, just oh, yeah. like every other profession has mm-hmm. the same problem. Nobody wants to do the ethics class. But if you make it relevant and if you teach people like, you know, that scenario, you find out that one of your colleagues cheated. Now, do you have an obligation to report that to the governing board or not? Like, these are the kinds of ethical questions I put into scenarios and ask people, you know, your, your colleague says, hey, let's do this thing and let's, you know, let's cheat to, do, to get our certification. Mm-hmm. You have an ethical dilemma here. Do you do it or not? And a lot of people will cave into the peer pressure because they want to be accepted into the group. And Mm -hmm. I'm here to say, yeah, you have to think a little step further and say, what's the consequence if I do this? Do Mm -hmm. I want to be caught? I remember I worked for another large company and they trained us the first week we were all there. We went through training. And the first question they said is, if you're asked to do something I want you to think about whether you want to see yourself on the nightly news as a result of doing that thing. And if the answer is no, don't do it. You know what? There's a lot of wisdom in that. There yep. really is. So, yep. okay. Okay. Marcy, how can people get a hold of you? Cause, cause they're going to want to get a hold of you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So my website is e dash factor game.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can get a hold of me there. There's contact information there. Um, and they can also look, I have a, I'm working on a new uh, website as well, businessethicscoach.com. Mm-hmm. So they can get a hold of me, either one of those places, my phone number and my email address is, is in there and they can, there's contact forms. Wow. Okay. Marcy at E factor game. You are awesome. Thank you so much for coming on truth, lies and cover-ups. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Anything I can do to help you guys, just let me know. I'm here. I, I, my passion is helping people solve those ethical dilemmas in ways that are positive for themselves. So mm-hmm. if I can do that for your audience and for you, Tracy. I am so excited to be able to do that. Be careful or we'll have you back. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a threat compared to some that I've lived through. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.